Whichever view you end up taking, everybody agrees that these chapters are announcing that the future hope has come, that God is fulfilling Isaiah's prophetic promises. And so the prophet hopes that Israel will respond by becoming God's servant. That is, after experiencing God's justice and mercy through history, that they will now begin to share with the nations who God truly is. But that's not what's happening. Israel, instead of bearing witness to the nations, is actually complaining and even accusing God. They say, the Lord doesn't pay attention to our trouble. In fact, he's ignoring our cause. The Babylonian exile, understandably, caused Israel to lose faith in their God. I mean, maybe he's not that powerful. Maybe the gods of Babylon are way greater than our God. And so the rest of these chapters, 41 to 47, are set up like a trial scene. God is responding to these doubts and accusations with the following arguments. He says first that the exile to Babylon was not divine neglect. Rather, it was divinely orchestrated as a judgment for Israel's sin. And second, it was for Israel's sake that God raised up Persia to conquer Babylon so they could come back home fulfilling Isaiah's words. So the right conclusion that Israel should draw is that their God is the king of history, not the idols of the nations. In the fall of Babylon and the rise of the Persian king Cyrus, Israel should see God's hand at work and so become his servant, telling the nations who he is. But by the end of the trial, chapter 48, we find that Israel is still as rebellious and hard-hearted as their ancestors. And so God disqualifies them as his servant, but God still is on a mission to bless the nations. And so the prophet says God's going to do a new thing to solve this problem, which moves into the next section, 49 to 55. We're introduced to a figure who's called God's servant, who's going to fulfill God's mission and do what Israel has failed to do. God gives this servant the title Israel and sends this person on a mission to, first of all, restore the people of Israel back to their God, but second, to become God's light to the nations. Would you pray with me? Almighty God, pour out your Holy Spirit on me and on all of us gathered here. Lord, take my words and make them yours. Take all of our thoughts and make them yours. And take our hearts and set them on fire for you. Father, we love you. We ask all this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Okay, so last week we we did the first portion of Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, which are, you know, lots of of warnings of the judgment to come. Uh, Just really happy, lighthearted stuff, right? And the end of chapter 39 is where the whole book pivots. And there's this, this story at the end of, of 39 where King Hezekiah you know, welcomes these ambassadors from Babylon into Jerusalem. And he, then he takes them and, and shows them all the cool stuff he has in the storehouses and said, look at all my pretty things that you can come and take really easily. Right? It's not the smartest move. And, and Isaiah comes to him and says, well, because you've done this, Eventually, they're going to come for you, and they're going to defeat you, and they're going to destroy Jerusalem, and, and your own children, your own grandchildren will be among the people who are carried off into exile. And his response to it is to basically shrug his shoulders and say, well, that's their problem, not mine. I'll be dead by then. And, and you're left wondering, well, okay, if, if he doesn't care about the welfare of the future generations of his people, who will? If, if this leader isn't going to care about them, who's going to take care of them? 
And it's a question that we, I think, often wrestle with ourselves now because, of course, the future is uncertain and, and all of us are feeling that uncertainty in different ways. But we all worry to some extent, who's going to care for our children and our grandchildren? Who's going to watch over them? Who's going to make wise decisions to, to govern the world well? And we wonder what the future will be like for those future generations of people. And, and the book pivots right there. And actually, there's a, there's a really long sort of time jump because at the end of 39-4, you're still a couple of decades away from the Babylonian invasion of Judah. And by the beginning of chapter 40, you are well into the exile. The book just skips over the part where Jerusalem is conquered completely. It's as if there's this period where God just stops speaking to the people for a little while before he comes back. But you still have that lingering question of what's going to happen now? Who's going to watch over the children of this current generation? And, and chapter 40 answers immediately. So in chapter 40, verse 1, Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling, in the wilderness prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up, every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level, the rugged places as a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed, and all people will see it together, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Comfort my people. In the Hebrew it reads, Nahan. Nahan, Amamar Elohim. You hear how in the original language it almost sounds like you're panting as you read it. It sounds as if you're out of breath because you're exhausted because you've been suffering along with the people. It's intentional. If you were reading this aloud in the Hebrew, the people would hear the voice of God exhausted and broken with the same suffering that they've been going through for the past 70 years. It's written into the words itself that God is there with them, experiencing the hardship with them. And then there's this imagery at the end of the passage, right, of, of this, this highway being paved through the desert, to, like the way home from Babylon to Jerusalem, with the ground being leveled and the hills flattened and the valleys raised up so that the way home is easy and straight which should put you in mind of the original Exodus when they were brought out of Egypt. And the Lord made a way for them, first through the water and then by providing food and water for them in the desert. It's a second Exodus story, except this time the trip will be even easier because God himself will level the ground for them to go through. And, and this time they won't be the only ones who see the glory of the Lord revealed because all people will see it. Have you ever had one of those moments where you wish you could, you could see into the future? Right. I think all of us <clears throat> have those times in our life, whether it's, you know, as, when we're younger, trying to decide, you know, what, what school to go to, what to study, what career we might want, uh, who to marry, all these, these things that occupy us when we're younger. Wouldn't it be so much easier if you could see how those decisions turned out, right? It'd be great. 
even as you're older, right, and you have, you have children and you're trying to guide your children through the crises that they have as teenagers or even as younger children and you're wondering what advice to give them or how to parent them through those difficult times, wouldn't it be great if you could see even just a couple weeks ahead to see how it turns out? To know that you made the right call, that you did the thing you were supposed to do. We all have those moments, right? There's so many times in life when it would be just so easy if you could just see a couple of years ahead or even just a couple of weeks ahead to see how things would turn out. You'd be so much more confident in your own decisions. I've actually heard before that one of the simplest ways when you're uh, in the midst of a crisis and, and you have all these problems boiling over and you're just drowning in the anxiety of it all, one of the simplest ways to cope is to actually imagine your life 10 years in the future because in 10 years, all your biggest problems now will be resolved. I mean, you'll have new ones by then, but, <laughs> but the ones you have now won't seem so pressing, will they? Right? We don't have to imagine what the future holds. We know. It's told to us. You know, initially... These passages were, were just for the people of Israel, but they were always intended to function for us in the same way they functioned for the Israelites. It's hard to know when these parts of Isaiah were written. Um, some people will tell you that because from 39 to 40, there's such a big difference and there's such a big time gap, it seems like actually the second part of the book was written by somebody else who was one of Isaiah's students and, and knew all of his writings and, and was writing sort of in his voice at a later day. But some people will say, Actually, Isaiah was given a vision of the future by God while he was still living in Jerusalem before all this happened. Either way, we know that this part right here, chapter 40, is written well before the exile is over. This is not describing what God has already done. It is telling the people what God is going to do. The message is not hey, look what God already did for you. It's, listen, I know you were in the midst of hardship right now, and here is what I, your God, will do for you. You're going to have to go through this. You will have to go through the suffering. You will have to go through the exile. But on the other side, I will be there for you. I am not abandoning you. I am with you. God is present with his people in the midst of their exile, even when their exile is the result of their faithlessness. That's powerful stuff. They have abandoned God. God refuses to abandon them. And so now we move ahead into chapter 42. Here is my servant whom I uphold. My chosen one in whom I delight, I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. He will not shout or cry out or raise his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. In faithfulness he will bring forth justice. He will not falter or be discouraged till he establishes justice on earth. In his teachings the islands will put their hope. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. For a long time, 
Jewish scholars have read that passage and have said, this is God describing the nation of Israel. The nation of Israel is God's servant. This passage describes how we as Israel are supposed to live, how we are supposed to function. This is our calling. And for almost as long, Christian scholars have read this passage and they've said, this passage describes Jesus. This is how Jesus lived. This is what he did. And they're both right. This is, in fact, the calling of the people of Israel, and Jesus is the embodiment of the people of Israel. Jesus is the one who is called to represent all the people. He is Israel. So they're both right. And the thing is, if they're both right, if this is the calling for the people of Israel, if this is Jesus' calling, if this describes how Jesus lived, then this also describes our calling as the people of God both individually on our own, in our own lives, and collectively as the body of Christ, this describes how we are meant to live because we're supposed to be like Jesus. This is our calling. This is how we're meant to live in the midst of the troubles of our life. In the midst of everything going on, we are called to live like this. We're called to show gentleness to the weak, right? He won't break a bruised reed. He's that gentle. Won't snuff out a wick. He's that gentle. We're called to bring justice through the teaching of God's word. And that's key, right? The justice is not just justice as we interpret it, but through the teaching of God's word. We're supposed to bring God's justice into the world. And maybe most importantly, we are supposed to be a light to the nations. In other parts of Isaiah, in other parts of the Bible, it will talk about being a light shining in the darkness. We're supposed to be a people of of hope and peace and joy. There's supposed to be something about us that when people see us in our everyday life, they know there's something different. It's evident from the way we live our lives, from the way we talk, from the way we act, there's something noticeably different about us. And let me tell you something, if you are living right now with peace and hope and joy, it's going to be pretty easy for folks to spot that there's something different about you. (laughs) We are not living in times where it's normal for someone to have all those things. People are searching for some kind of hope to cling on to. People are searching for peace, they're searching for joy, and they're trying to find it any way they can. So if we are living with peace and hope and joy in our hearts and in our lives, we will be the light shining in the darkness. But all too often we aren't. All too often we give in to the same fears, the same anxieties, the same angers and hatreds that surround us. Because all too often we put our hope for the future in the same things that everyone else does. In, in human institutions, in political leaders, in whatever else instead of putting them in our God. It's going to be really hard to have hope for tomorrow if you're basing all your hope on things that have already failed. God gives us hope that transcends all our current struggles. In any of our lifetimes, there has probably never been a time when it would be easier for us to be a light shining in the darkness. 
We're surrounded by so much anger and so much hatred and so much fear and anxiety and division. It should be really easy for the people of God to be a light in the middle of the darkness. But we still struggle. We still fall prey to the same temptations that lead everyone astray. We put our hope in the wrong things. We lose sight of the great hope that we have in God and in Christ. And the light goes out. I'm going to skip ahead again now to Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13 and then going on into the next chapter. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. And just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being and his form was marred beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering, yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that bought us peace was on him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before its shears is silent, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away, yet who of his generation protested? For he was cut off from the land of the living. For the transgression of my people he was punished. He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death. Though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth, yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will give him a portion among the great, and he will divide the spoils with the strong, because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. So once again, if you ask a Jewish scholar, what this passage is about. They'll say it's about us. It's about Israel. It's about the people of God. This is describing our history. There's, it starts off with humiliation and it ends in exaltation, right? So it's the humiliation of the, ex, of the exile and the exaltation of the return from exile. And if you ask a Christian scholar what the passage is about, they'll say it's about Jesus. It's about the humiliation of the cross and the exaltation of the resurrection. And, and again, they're both right. Both things can be true. So what does it mean for us? It tells us that we have to trust in God to do something new through suffering. This is one thing we have in common with our Jewish brethren, that we both believe that God 
works through suffering. Which is very different from the rest of the world because the rest of the world will say that, that suffering uh, is a dead end with no future. There's no meaning behind it. it. And that's why they question then why a good God would allow suffering in the first place. But God does things a bit differently. God works through suffering. God gives meaning to our suffering. Which is not the same thing as saying he caused it. We live in a broken world and bad things happen. Suffering was not God's intent or plan from the beginning, but the reality is it's here. And what God does is he redeems it. <clears throat> One of the greatest stories of God redeeming suffering comes from uh, Corey Tenboom, who was born in the Netherlands in the early 1900s, was, was a little girl when the Nazis took over her country, and her family, who were devout Christians, were smuggling Jewish families out of the country. And eventually one of their neighbors turned them in, and they were sent to the concentration camps along with the Jewish families they'd been trying to get to safety. So they were separated, and the girls were in their own building with the other children. And they started leading a Bible study in the middle of their concentration camp in their bunkhouse. And naturally the guards didn't like that, so they would come and break it up. Until eventually... Somehow, their bunkhouse was infested with fleas. And at first they were miserable because, of course, they were covered in flea bites and they couldn't sleep and they were scratchy. But then they realized the guards left them alone because they didn't want fleas. So she says, eventually we were thanking God for the fleas because they left us alone. Years later, you know, her, her entire family dies and, the, and she's the only one who lives through the experience. Parents, siblings, all dead. Years later, she was touring through Europe, preaching and, and giving lectures. And after one of her talks, a man approached her afterwards. And she instantly recognized one of the former guards at her camp. He didn't recognize her. And he comes up to her and explains to her how after the war, he found Christ. He repented. He was forgiven. He's a new man. And he asked her for forgiveness. And in the story, she goes, I, I, I couldn't do it. I had to pray in that moment for God to give me the strength to forgive him, and he did. But I couldn't do it on my own. Just imagine. None of you in this room are ever going to know suffering like she did. Imagine how many people went to their deaths with peace in their hearts because she was there. Because she was a light in the darkness. In the darkest place you could possibly imagine. And on top of it all, to have one of the men inflicting that evil on people see the light of Christ and repent and be redeemed after all of that. That is the work of God in the midst of suffering. That is the power of God to redeem our darkest times. You're not just supposed to understand this passage. You're supposed to believe it, to make it a part of you, to understand that God's mighty saving power is not most thoroughly revealed in, in wrath or anger. It is most thoroughly revealed in the weak, suffering servant who bears the sins of us all. 
that God's ultimate triumph over evil was not a feat of strength or power or wrath, but a feat of sacrifice and humility, and actually a feat of suffering. You see, sin, sin does more than just make us guilty. Sin actually, it, it infests all of creation, but it, but it alters human nature. This is what we mean when we talk about original sin, the idea that we're all sinful. It's not that we're all just, you know, making bad choices. It's that the effect of generations of human sin affects human nature itself. It alters it and it corrupts it so that left to our own devices, we aren't capable of choosing good. We aren't capable of doing the right thing, at least not consistently. Not for the right reasons, certainly. And so Jesus, the servant of God, who was sent to be a light to all nations, Jesus took upon himself the guilt of our sin. And by his resurrection, he defeated death itself. And in his incarnation, in his ascension, he took human nature and united it with God in a way that fixes the corruption. And then he sends us the Holy Spirit who empowers us to do what our ancestors in Israel could not do. To be the servant of God described in these passages to be holy and righteous, to be a light to all nations, to live as Jesus lived. To rely on his power to do the things that we can't do. But above all, God is reminding us that we are saved. That he has come, that his kingdom has been inaugurated and its king has been crowned, and that one day that kingdom will come in its fullness and all creation will be within its borders. That's our great hope. That is how God comforts us now in the midst of darkness, and that's how God promises to overcome all the evil that we cannot. Like the Israelites, we live in exile. We live in a hostile world that's infested with sin, and we can't escape, but God is reaching in. God is speaking to us. God is providing for us. And those of us who know Jesus, we get a foretaste of what is to come, and we get to be a part of of God's work in bringing it about. And so many people, and especially non-Christians, will question the idea of a God who allows for suffering and who actually might seem to intentionally inflict it on his people at times. But the reality is, right, they'll, they'll say the God of the Old Testament is, is cruel and vengeful, and some Christians will go along with that, won't they? Yeah, that God's mean. I don't like him. But the New Testament God's ten times better. You should really look at New Testament God. He's great. Right? God 2.0 is a big improvement. And so they don't pay much attention to the Old Testament. But Jesus read Isaiah. He quoted it extensively. In fact, he quotes it enough that it's a pretty good bet he had the whole thing memorized. Along with the other prophets of the Old Testament. Because he understood Isaiah and the other prophets to be the, the framework for understanding his life and his ministry and his work. And his announcement of the kingdom of God which is what's going on in this second part of Isaiah. God is saying his kingdom is beginning to break into the world. The end game has started. The kingdom is coming. And one day he will bring it about in its fullness. The Old Testament God is the New Testament God. They are one and the same. See, God is the Lord of history. And, and at times... God has to step in and treat his diseased creation and, and 
Sometimes that looks unpleasant, as we talked about last week. But there is always hope and healing on the other side. And God is in the midst of us, even in those dark times. For the Jewish people, that that hope on the other side was the end of the exile, the return to Jerusalem. And when that happened, some rejoiced and some didn't. Not all the Jews returned home. For us, the hope is twofold. First, we, we have hope in renewal in our lives here and now through the work of the Holy Spirit. Our, our pain, our suffering can be redeemed right now. And the second part of it is, is hope in the coming kingdom. Hope for the future, hope for tomorrow, based on the sure and certain knowledge that Jesus is coming back. He will come to complete the work he's already begun. And when he does, all the evil of the world will be washed away. All the pain and suffering will be washed away. All the bad things become untrue. God will comfort us. God will heal us. God will look after us and God will save us. God does not always work in ways that we understand, and and his salvation, his victory over evil, it confounds human wisdom. It's not accomplished by means we would have chosen. And at times, it can seem like God has abandoned us, or like he's neglecting us, or like he's even punishing us. But the reality is, we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. We live in Babylon, and we're yearning with all our hearts to be in the kingdom. Her hope this time around is not that God will spirit us away to the kingdom, but rather that God is bringing the kingdom to us where we are. So we can have hope for tomorrow and for the week after and for next year because we know that the future is in God's hands, not ours. Thanks be to God.